0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, Sue Balcom gets us ready for spring. It is somewhere in the hopefully near future as she helps us start to get ready for spring planting. But we are going to start today with a name familiar to many listeners, and that is Antonia Gonzalez. She is the anchor and producer for National Native News, a former associate producer for Native America Calling, and she is In North Dakota to speak at the eighth annual NDSU press party coming up tonight at the Alumni Center at NDSU. And she will be speaking tomorrow at the Plains Art Museum for the morning fill up. Antonia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And you have contributed to the most recent book from NDSU Press, and that is Rethinking Rural, Reflections on Today, Insights for the Future. You uh, wrote an essay, Chapter 3, Indian Country. I want to talk about this title and the use of the word rural. Could you give me a definition of what rural means to you beyond low population center.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I was asked to um, write this essay a few years ago, and the first thing came to mind was, you know, this is what we report on daily is a lot of different issues that are facing our tribal communities um, when it comes to you name it, because, you know, a lot of our, our tribal communities are located in places that Um, our rural areas. And so um, we think a lot about what does that mean? Um, All of the United States is Indian country, um, especially before, you know, um, Europeans came and settlers and changed the life of our indigenous people. And when I think of rural, I was thinking more of like, through my work of both uh, doing radio and television for all these years, and just really focusing on people's stories mm-hmm. and their perspectives, um, and really shining a light on that, because that's what I've built, built my career on—is mm-hmm. helping bring Indigenous voices um, to the airwaves, and then also on uh, our local uh, PBS station in New Mexico, and so. I think when I thought about that and how I was going to write about it it was really focusing on issues other than like places, if that makes sense.
0: Mm -hmm. So for about 400 years, the dominant culture has um, oppressed and silenced the indigenous voices. And then there has been a movement in the past few years. There's been um, more storytelling from an indigenous perspective and, and from non-Indigenous people telling these stories. Can you talk about what it is, though, that you are able to bring, and realizing that you can't speak for members of 574 recognized tribes, but this awareness that the storytelling belongs to you?
1: So I think, um, you know, it's such an honor to be able to share voices and uplift those voices of indigenous people across the country and around the world and helping bring those stories because those stories, you know, don't belong to me. They don't belong to, you know, the work that I do, but it's really the people and it's really helping them share their stories. And for sure, a huge shout out to Native radio because Native American radio um, is still key in tribes across the country um, you know there are many radio stations that are key to not only bringing news information, entertainment but emergency alerts and a lot of different things that these radio stations are really the heart of the community and it 's such an honor to have our program um air on these radio stations and so I think about that too is just that Um, You know, our our National Native News is a stringer-based program. I am the only staff member who's producing and anchoring it. Um, We have an engineer who puts together the show, but um, the rest of it is stringer-based. So we have people who are at radio stations across the country um, who file stories or people who are freelancers and they send us stories. Um, We're always looking for stories. And so, um, you know, many of our contributors are non-Native American, um, but they really have found a way to help share these stories in a respectful way where um, I think a lot of times you can't just do fly in, fly out, fly out reporting where you Mm -hmm. just, you know, go in expecting to get something, um, but really just being a human and going into a tribal community and yeah. and learning and, and listening. And, um, you know, the rest just comes to you. And I think that that's how a lot of our reporters and, and freelancers across the country that we work with who are non-Native um, have embraced reporting for national Native news. And we do have a number of um, Native American reporters who file stories for us. And um, our uh, headquarters in Anchorage, Alaska, we have uh, – Uh, some Alaska native reporters there as well. So it's just such an exciting time. And and I love radio. I really, really love radio. So I just can't get that out, how much I love radio. (laughs) Though you started in TV. I did. I started in commercial television, and that was (laughs) short-lived.
0: Yeah. The deadlines, the makeup, it's a a very different uh, tone of work
1: (laughs) to do that. But I do enjoy public television. I really enjoy working with our local public television Um, And all my work with them focuses on indigenous stories as well.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to something you said in in your very first answer that, you know, all of North America is Indian country. And I, I want to, this is an impossibly large question, but as you are a producer and trying to tie together, weaving this golden thread of telling a story that, what might impact, for example, uh, your people group, the, the Navajo, the Diné people in southwestern United States, and what commonality they might share uh, with a group that is Algonquin, but also recognizing that those are tremendously different geographic areas. There would be different sources of food. There would be different spiritual practices. Do you have a way to articulate even How you are able to weave a common thread without trying to lump everything into an Indian perspective, for want of a better term.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that it is a hard question to answer. But I guess, you know, when you think of like statistics or, you know, government or something like that, they always want to clump it in with American Indian and Mm -hmm. Alaska Native. And even though there are, you know, hundreds of tribes across the country, like you mentioned, Um, And so I think the thing, though, is as we are connected, we do understand. And when we're reporting, when I approach a story, say, for example, it's about a sacred item. Like we are not going to say this tribe is fighting for the sacred item because this is what it does. We'll just say, you know, because that's no one's business except for the tribe. Mm. Um, we let them share with us what they want to share. So, um, you know, this is a story we've we've followed for a long time. And and it's interesting because stories like this, there is progress. I mean, there it seems like we've been um, reporting on things, you know, decades ago that are now coming um, to the attention of a more broader audience so for example, when we talk about missing and murdered indigenous people we've been covering this for for a very very long right. time and you know really looking at the movement that started in Canada and then through the United States and now currently um, what I'm going to be sharing a little bit tonight at the book talk is about Indian boarding schools. this is such a hard topic for every single, Native person in this country. We've all been impacted by this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's The pain has lasted generations. Um, my own mother um, went to boarding school, and so I understand, I connect. It's not just statistics and stories. It's things that happen in our own family. And so how do you approach that as a journalist, and then how am I approaching that as a Native person who's closely connected to this? And so I think... <laughs> You know, it kind of went around answering your question, <laughs> but we're all connected. So Indian mm-hmm. boarding schools has has impacted every single tribe across the country. Um, missing and murdered indigenous people has impacted every tribe across the country. Um, there are, like I was talking about the sacred items, that's relatable to tribes across the country. It might not be their specific tribe in New mm-hmm. Mexico, but – Somebody, you know, in Oklahoma could understand that. Someone here in North Dakota could understand that. So I guess to answer your question is our stories still connect and are
0: understood by other Native listeners. Mm -hmm. Well, UND is uh, still dealing with the fact that there has been a discovery of remains. I mean, we are talking objects and the bones of, of people that don't belong to the University of North Dakota. We're visiting today with Antonio Gonzalez. She is the anchor and producer of National Native News. She is speaking at NDSU tonight, 7 to 9 p.m., as part of the 8th Annual NDSU Press Party. She has contributed to Volume 1 of Rethinking Rural Reflections on Today, Insights for the Future. Uh, I guess we'll, we can focus in on, on that part of the title now. As you are reflecting on today, and providing those insights for the future, what are the areas where you feel the most hopeful? I really think that,
1: and I kind of reflect back on the end of my essay, is where I talk about, you know, I begin with treaties and talking about treaties and then different infrastructure needs, tribal radio stations, uh, missing and murdered indigenous people, Indian boarding schools, and COVID-19. And yes, as journalists, I think, you know, sometimes we do people, maybe people think that all we do is provide negative news. But Mm. I feel like in my essay, I expressed the resilience of our people, the resilience of all of these things that we have been through and we go through and continue to go through today. And at the end of my essay, it was still, you know, the middle of COVID-19 And I was interviewing the then president of my tribe, the Navajo Nation, and he talked about our people and the long walk. And that's a story um, of our people being forced by the government to walk from our traditional homelands um, in Arizona Mm -hmm. and march through to New Mexico. And then after our leaders uh, made an agreement, they let our people, the government, had our people march back home. And so he talked about how, you know, maybe there was a, just, a, you know, a number of people who made it back home. But today we're one of the largest tribes in the United States mm-hmm. and just our resilience. And I used a quote from him, and I talked about how we're journalists, we're doctors, we're lawyers, we're actors. I mean, <laughs> you name it, not only Navajo, but – um, indigenous people across the country. I mean, any profession. And I, I always like to joke too and say that, find me, give me a story topic and I'll find the Indigenous perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. this is what I've been doing for a long time. But um, that's, I think, and to answer your question too, is um, our youth. Our youth. Mm-hmm. I really think definitely, I see so much in our youth already. Like, they're already leaders. They're already. Taking, um, taking on so much now that it's just going to be so exciting to see where the future is for, of our indigenous young people.
0: Yeah, well, in mentioning, you know, from politics to entertainment, I'm thinking Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, a member of the Pueblo of Laguna, and then talk about a show like Reservation Dogs and just blowing up uh, both critical and commercial success and having an all-Indigenous cast and heavily Indigenous, if not all, um, for writers and producers and directors, and even just the ability to have a name like and not having to change that to something um, more palatable. Um, <laughs> what does it feel like <laughs> to be able to be in a national spotlight in a very largely positive, to go beyond the we can only talk about the pain that has happened?
1: It's exciting, and it's funny, too, because... Um we're funny people. I mean, <laughs> I, indigenous people across the country, um, even around the world, we're just funny people. I mean, you got to have a humor to deal with a lot of the stuff that right. our people have been through. But um, it just, it is. it is, it's funny. Like, we have inside jokes, and now we're seeing them on television. And we think they're hilarious, and we'll laugh, but maybe someone who's not from... In the know doesn't understand. But, um, you know, I, f- I reflect a lot also on just my grandmother and how close I was to mm. her. Um, I did not grow up on the reservation. I grew up in cities in Arizona and New Mexico. But I had such a deep connection with my grandmother, and we were always going to the reservation. And I grew up with her, and she lived to be nearly 100. She died when she was 99 years old. Wow. And um, I think about her humor and everything that she went through is probably every single statistic you'll find in Indian country, but her resilience and her humor and her smile, and that just speaks to what I think of when I think of our indigenous resilience and just how happy she was, and, and she was just such a great woman that Um, It it brings up all our indigenous resilience and our matriarchs because we have so many strong matriarchs. And talking about women, there's so many Native women leaders out there, not only on the tribal level, but...
0: Um, state level and definitely federal government level. Well, and now even within the Navajo Nation, the first ever vice president of the tribe. And like you mentioned, you're a matriarchal, matrilineal society, traditionally power passed along the female side. And now, <laughs> um, getting back to that, almost having, uh, is it uh, Rochelle Montoya? Did I get that correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as the first female vice president, and you have a very young president of the Navajo Nation. Um, What are you watching uh, coming out of that? I think just for
1: definitely Navajo Nation, looking at a lot of the infrastructure needs Mm -hmm. and how that's going to be handled. Also looking at at recovery from COVID-19, that was definitely hit hard for one
0: point, the third highest rate in the country
1: for the, for the tribe. And, and looking at, it's just, you know, even not just like, like the tribe, but individuals too, because you had this virus that really impacted whether you were an artist or, you know, there's people who have all kinds of different, different areas of their lives that were really impacted and, and the recovery. And with this, um, new president, um, having all those COVID-19 restrictions lifted. And that was pretty much a big deal, too. Um, there are still some tribes I know that are still taking precautions um, and definitely individual, you know, businesses or offices mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But um, when you go through something like that, I think that um, it's it takes time. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're still kind of in a weird post- covid <laughs> way of life and so <laughs> um even just you know just even traveling too and right. you know
0: being around people and learning how to be around people again yeah. but um you do a fair amount of travel for work and uh, and now you're visiting some small cities uh talking about this book and, and other issues is that right yeah i'm here this is my first time in
1: fargo and um it's snowing so that's exciting that. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold but um you know i'm bundled up and uh, and it's just nice to be able to um be somewhere where you know i know the radio station um and to be able to come here and just be part of this it's really exciting
0: Yeah. Well, of course, our listeners here, National Native News, in fact, it is on at 7 o'clock, just the lead in before the uh, rebroadcast of Main Street. Can you walk us through kind of the day-to-day? How does it work to put together a newscast like that?
1: It's funny because
0: I remember a long time
1: ago when I was like just— a baby journalist <laughs> and I had an attorney friend and he's like, so you only do five minutes of news when do you do the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to strangle him so hard? No, I just I just <laughs> laughed because it was funny. I'm like well Actually, when you're not to do that. <laughs> when you're not in the courtroom, what are you doing? Like <laughs> yeah, uh, uh-huh. But I I mean I laughed about it. Now I was I was never offended. I just thought it was funny <laughs> because people don't know if you're right. not in journalism and if you're not in broadcasting you don't know how long you know 30 seconds could take I mean five seconds (laughs) one second you can't have you know dead air so um, you know we're always looking for stories um look working with stringers across the country and I'm so grateful for all the stringers who contribute to our programs and You know, I'm up early and pretty much just, you know, around the clock um, looking at what's going on and finding stories. And, of course, I do my own reporting, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's pretty much my day. And I'm working with our Anchorage office at KMBA. We have some news producers up there. So I've been new news producers. So I've been working with them. Um, So it's it's. I'm very grateful to be able to have this job. And, yeah, it's a lot of work, but, you know, I I enjoy it. And I've been able to raise a family. I have two boys, and so who knows – What's next in life? But yeah, one one in college and one in high school. So and and a puppy and a husband. So <laughs>
0: I've been very blessed and also a very demanding full time job. <laughs> okay, you're one of those. <laughs> well, and it can be done. And I'm I'm, yeah. I'm when you get up at
1: four a.m. like you do. <laughs> well, when when I I I've mentored students along the way too in my career, and I always encourage broadcasting just because Mm. and radio, of course, because you can have a life, you can have a career. And I think that that's the best part of being in radio. And I just really love native radio. It's such it's such a fun job.
0: Yeah. That is Antonio Gonzalez. She is the anchor and producer for National Native News. She is a former associate producer for Native America Calling, and uh, she started by working at the CBS affiliate in New Mexico, working in commercial journalism. She has contributed to the book Rethinking Rural Reflections on Today, Insights for the Future, speaking tonight at the Alumni Center at NDSU and tomorrow morning at the Plains Art Museum for the Morning Philip. Give us just a little bit of a sense of what the Morning Philip is. It's like the party that never ends.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't know. Matt Matt will probably laugh. But um, yeah, just a continuation of um, discussion and sharing and reflecting on the book and the other authors and just my contribution and um, talking a little bit more about issues impacting Indian country and Maybe there's a volume two. We'll have to ask Matt, who will be there tonight. He's the the editor, and he he's the one that got me um, into this. Uh, he just called me up one time and said, "Hey, can you write this essay for me? <laughs> I have this idea." Mm. I'm like, "Okay, I don't really write long form,
0: but I'll try." <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it worked out. <laughs> yeah, is, is that uh, has that long been a trait of yours? Say yes. In- <laughs> Sure. (laughs) Antonia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
2: Hi, I'm uh, Jack Zaleski. I'm the former editorial page editor and a current columnist for the Forum of Fargo-Moorhead, and I've been a newspaper man for life. But no matter what the media and public radio is included, journalism is a vital pillar of democracy. We're seeing what happens with a superpower whose leader goes unchecked by a free and independent press. We've seen democracy and the media under attack right here in this country. It is always important to support your trusted sources of journalism. So keep reading and subscribing to your area newspapers, digital or in print. Become a member of your local public radio station, Prairie Public. And we journalists will continue to seek the truth. No matter what we uncover.
0: Still to come on Main Street, a Plains Folk essay from Tom Ezern and Sue Balcom is here to help us get ready for planting. But first, this news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster.
3: Now that things are dug out from the last winter storm, here comes the weekend.
0: Now is the time to prepare. You know, we could see uh, several inches somewhere across North Dakota and and Bismarck could be in that uh, area, but we're just going to have to wait and see to get those specifics.
3: Zachary Hargrove is a meteorologist with the Bismarck National Weather Service. He says forecast models are pointing toward another snow band event developing for parts of southern North Dakota by Sunday.
0: The problem with these banded snow events is we rarely know exactly where that band is going to set up until it's actually on the radar and being observed. We are confident we're going to have some accumulating snow somewhere in the northern plains. Where that sets up exactly, we've been consistently showing that in the southern half of North Dakota again for the last couple of days. But we're still a long way out when it comes to these kind of uh, small-scale setups. So things could still change quite dramatically.
3: Hargrove says the system will move through quickly, but it could bring a heavier, wetter snow. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is allowing eight states, including Minnesota and South Dakota, to start selling gasoline with a higher concentration of ethanol year-round. But as Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports, it won't take effect in time for the summer driving season.
2: The rule change will allow the states to sell gasoline with 15 percent ethanol. The governors asked for permission to do so almost a year ago, but the EPA didn't rule until now, and it won't go into effect until the summer of 2024. Kathy Berggren is the director of public policy for the National Corn Growers Association. She says the delay is frustrating, but sees it as a step forward towards national acceptance of E15.
3: It's kind of created some additional leverage for a nationwide solution. It certainly will be positive in, in these states.
2: Some ethanol opponents say having different states with varying kinds of fuels will drive up prices because companies will have to make specialized blends depending on the state. I'm Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media.
3: And the State Board of Higher Education is hoping the state Senate will restore money for marketing the state's 11 colleges and, and universities. Governor Burgum included $1 million in his executive budget for promotion. The House didn't go along. Chancellor Mark Hagarot says he's perplexed about that.
4: We sat with the governor and he goes, what are you doing for system-wide marketing? Well, thank you for that question, sir. It used to be on our budget. You need to get that back.
3: Haggard says he thinks a compelling case can be made to the Senate to get that money restored.
4: If we're not communicating to them systematically on workforce, and that was the, the governor's suggestion, find the most popular programs across your system, highlight those, and then have a link on the page to the specific campuses.
3: The Senate Appropriations Committee gets an overview of the higher ed budget on Friday. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster.
4: Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
2: Morning Edition, weekdays from 4 to 9 a.m. Central on Prairie Public.
0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Regular listeners and fans of Tom Easern's Plainsfolk essay know he loves his songs. And today, he traces a link between a popular summer camp song and a hymn. Here's this week's Plainsfolk essay, Who Feeds Them All?
2: I made a cold call to the Jamestown offices of the North Dakota Farmer's Union in order to talk with Trevor Lewis, the youth education specialist in charge of the Farmer's Union Summer Camp Program. I asked Trevor, are you familiar with the old song, The Farmer is the Man? And bless his union heart, he was. I I wanted to know whether the Summer Camp Songbook still contained the stanzas of the song. Trevor got right back to me with a copy of the 2022 Farmer's Union Camp Songbook. The published songbooks for summer camps of the North Dakota Farmers Union are uh, eclectic. There are the silly summer camp standards like God Bless My Underwear. Uh, There are old popular songs like Jeremiah Was a Bullfrog. And here and there, peeking out like pieces of old farm machinery parked in the shelterbelt, are a few old standards of farm organization and agrarian advocacy on the prairies like The Farmer is the Man. When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, oh, the farmer is the man who feeds them all. It seems like no one in the farmer's union knows where this song came from. But I do. A year or so ago, I discovered the original text and identified its author, the evangelist, Knowles Shaw. Reverend Shaw is best known as the composer of the Protestant hymn, Bringing in the Sheaves. He was living in Kansas in 1874 when the Granger Movement, the National Grange of the Patrons of Husbandry, gathered steam as a fraternal organization for farm advocacy. The Grange organized farmers with evangelical fervor, which got Shaw's attention, and so he wrote them a ballad, The Farmer is the Man quickly became a Granger favorite for singing at picnics and rallies. This got me wondering, since the song is still here, was the Grange ever a going thing in North Dakota? To begin the answer to the question, first recognize that the heyday of the Grange was the 1870s, and North Dakota did not become a state until 1889. So the question really is, was the Grange ever a going thing in the northern half of Dakota Territory? The answer is, well, not so much. The only record of Grange organization I have located in the state archives is a charter issued to a local Grange in Buffalo in 1884. This appears to have been the work of an interesting Danish immigrant to western Cass County named Christian Westergaard. I don't think his Grange really got off the ground. Since Minnesota had hundreds of Granges in the 1870s, indeed, Minnesota was the place where the organization first got traction, Why not North Dakota? One answer is chronology. The Grange was failing by 1880, and agricultural settlement at that time had only well begun in North Dakota. A study of newspapers of the era, however, while confirming the lack of Granger activity here, also gives clues as to the reason for such lack. The city of Bismarck had just been founded in 1873 when the Bismarck Tribune, hearing what was going on with those radical farmers in Minnesota, declared that the Grangers have created distrust of railroads and investors have turned from them, choosing government bonds bearing a low rate of interest instead. The Northern Pacific Railroad had financial problems and it succeeded in blaming the Grangers for its problems. So I have no idea how the old Granger song got established in North Dakota, but I can tell you, In Farmer's Union Summer Camp, the farmer is still the man who feeds them all.
0: Dr. Tom Eastern is a distinguished professor of history at North Dakota State University. Still to come on Main Street, Sue Balcom gets us ready for gardening. So we can shovel up all that snow and and get ready to plant something underground soon. Hi,
5: I'm Tom Brusso on the next great American folk show, Minneapolis hip-hop artist Nerd D.
2: So it's really lucky I found those who love me and show me my work was inherently perfect. So get you a ticket and stream you a song, and when you feel it you can sing along.
5: Her sound has been described as Gillian Welch meets the band, Margot Silka. Hey. Plus music from Caitlin Gowdy of the Rainbow Girls, Minneapolis Coffee Shop owner, Bob Rice, and German bass luthier, Stephen Dentome. The Great American Folk Show. Listen Saturday at 5 p.m. Central on Prairie Public.
4: Arts Programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota.
0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with Craig Blumenschein, and it is time to chat with root seller Sue. Sue, thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me. Hi, Sue. Hi, Craig. Have you got your plants started
2: yet? Somebody in my household has.
5: No, 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 no. It's too early. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm sorry. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I'll let her know. Okay, because what happens... I know everybody is anxious. The weather is getting nice. The days are getting longer. The snow is slowly melting into the ground, which is a super big blessing for us all. After
0: so many oh, my gosh. <laughs> drought yes. seasons.
5: I only hope it doesn't flood me out of my house, yeah. but um, I hopefully they're watching that. And this slow melt is really the best thing. So I know that there are people out there that have started their plants And um, there are some that you can start at the beginning of March. Uh, But what I would recommend is going back and checking your diary that you're keeping on your garden because, as I've said before, that is the key here to planting. Um, If you're doing things like parsley or onions, those can go in really early because they are so slow to germinate. But one of the things about planting your seeds way too early is that you have to, A, babysit them, like I do. It's my own fault. (laughs) And then, of course, you you know that when you put them in the ground and they've already started fruiting or blossoming, that you have to cut those off anyway because you want all the energy to go into the root when you plant that plant, and then they can bloom when they're good and ready to. So I actually am going to take my own advice this year and not start quite as early as I normally do. Um, Around the 15th of March is when I start my tomatoes and peppers usually, and I might actually hold off a little bit. For some reason, they really like to grow at my house, and last year they they were so unruly. Like it was just a tangled web of leaves and stuff, and I had to prune those suckers back a couple times before I could put them in the garden. So what you can do in the meantime, though, and it's almost just as much fun, is prepare, prepare, prepare to plant in about the middle or end of March. One of the things that you can do, now I don't know, is your your zone... Over there in the eastern part of the state, the same as the western part? Or are you guys maybe... We're kind of in
0: 3-4, and it's, it just sort of depends a little. Okay, because
5: I know the northern tier of the state, over on um, anything north of, is it Highway 200, they're almost in a wholly different zone. But I think we got a 4A and a 4B going here from east to west maybe. But you want to make sure if you're listening from some other area that you get into the zone before you do anything. Um, And then make a little bit of a schedule, which is why that diary, the journal, gardening journal, comes in so handy. Is that you can see from year to year when you're planting and what produced well and what seed varieties you want. Now, if you haven't ordered your seeds yet, that's one thing that you might want to do ASAP. As you know, gardening has become really in vogue. And so, one of the things that happened there was seed availability has dropped considerably for producers like myself, and B, the price of seeds has gone up. So, it's something that you have to like really pay attention to, and I actually buy seeds by the quarter pound or half pound as opposed to the little 25 seed packets and trust me I count to make sure there's <laughs> I a know that seed you do. <laughs> so so start with your seed packets, you know, get your seeds, line them up, get your list ready. If you're smart, you can use a spreadsheet. If not, just a pencil will work too. Um, but you want to count back from when you're going to plant them actually in your garden the number of weeks it takes for them to be ready to do that. And most of your seed packets will say start indoors 6 weeks before planting or 4 weeks before planting. So use that as your guide. And we talked about potting soil, so you you can get all that ordered and get that all ready, get your, you know, little things your little buckets filled. What do they call little planting pots? I use weird stuff for planting (laughs) pots. I (laughs) couldn't think of the word there, but um, make your schedule, you know, and so um, use fresh seed like some, you know, we talk many times about whether your seed is viable or not and how to test that. If you're using some old seed, you'll want to do a viability test, which is the same as what you did probably in science school in the fourth grade. And that is you put 10 seeds In a wet paper towel and put them in a wet or put them in a bag so that it stays moist. And if, you know, 50% of them or five of them come up, then you put two seeds in every one of your little seed cells, the word I was looking for a minute ago. And and that way you're sure your chances of one of them coming up is pretty good. But if you're like me and your husband's like, I don't understand why you always plant 200 tomato plants. I say, I don't. I start out with 100, but I can't kill that second one off. So I keep <laughs> moving them over and pretty soon I have 200 tomato plants. So make sure you got good seed. Get your seeds. Now, don't get carried away. You know, like, it is so This easy. coming
0: from you. Said the oh, gal <laughs> hundreds of tomato plants.
5: I know. But, you know, I always have that maybe a little extra land out there I could dig up if that day ever came. But, yeah, I, I sell off mine or give them to my family members if I have extra ones. Um, but, you know, if you have limited space in your garden, be smart about how many seeds you're starting indoors. And when I first started out, I read every organic gardening magazine ever published in the early 80s, and I would use, you know, milk cartons with soil in them, or I, I tried the eggshell thing one time to start my transplant. I used to boil my water so that the the oxygen would be boiled out of it and then cooled off, and you use that to water your plants. Seriously, folks, you need a, a good sterile soil. You need little tiny containers. You need lots of Water, but not too much water. You know, they have to stay moist when they're germinating. But the, the thing that I find that people don't do correctly when they're, okay, two things, and I'm guilty of 50% of this comment. They <laughs> don't put them under enough light when they get up there out of the surface of the soil. When they get those two little leaves and they're kind of still bent over a little bit, trying to pull themselves out of that ground, get them under the light, as much light as possible. If you don't have a grow area like I do, put them on your windowsill and then label them. That would oh, be the that. 50% that I suck at. Um, I try. Every year I try to keep them labeled. But as they grow and expand and I'm transplanting them pretty soon, I'm like, yeah, I don't remember. I can uh, tell a pepper from a tomato. But, you know, if you're growing broccoli and cabbage, those leaves are very similar. Although broccoli has a deeper green leaf than my cabbage variety, so
2: I struggle with telling the difference. I really do.
5: Well, I had, oh, man, I was watching somebody weed my garden one day and pull out a prime pepper plant. I'm like, holy crap, what are you doing? Um, do you need an ID chart here or something <laughs> like that? Oh that's my! That's why goodness. I'm
2: never allowed to weed the garden anymore, honestly, honestly.
5: Well, that's one way to get oh, yeah. out of it, Craig.
2: <laughs> it's the truth.
5: Um, and don't water from the top. They, the, those little tiny seedlings in particular do not like to be watered from the top. Um, and I do use heat mats underneath those those um, flats because that keeping their little feet warm, they love that. However, don't use your oven with the oven light on if you have a double oven because when you forget they're in the bottom and you put something <laughs> no. in the top, that's not good for those in the um, at all. And you don't need a lot of space to start a lot of plants. I have these little 10 by 10 trays that I use that you can get like 50 pepper plants seeded in there, and then once they get bigger and root-bound, then you pick them out and put them in a little bit bigger um, pot, and then hopefully that's the last time you have to transplant them, but I've been known to have to transplant two times after that because I started them too early. Oh, wow. So keep that in mind. And then they get heavy because, you know, those mm-hmm. those six-inch pots have a lot of soil, and so then you're going through even more soil than what you would normally use. Um, so water from the bottom. And and the reason this is really, really important, watering them from the bottom, you know, those roots will find that water, even if it's not touching the soil. If you have trays that are setting inside of a second tray, they'll head towards the bottom of that tray, which is a good thing for the roots. But you there's something called damping off, that happens before they have four leaves on them. Usually when they have two leaves in a very skinny stock, if you do not use sterile soil and if you overwater, they're going to girdle right there at the soil line. And by that I mean they just close up and constrict so it cuts off anything going from the roots to the leaves and so that damping off is just tragic, you know, like there's nothing you can do about it except start your seeds over. It's it's sad when that mm. happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing, when you're transplanting those, and people are always looking at me like I'm nuts when I say this, but don't pick those seedlings up by that stem that's coming out of the ground. Just grab, gently grab one of their leaves, take a... I use popsicle sticks or skewers and things. And I loosen that dirt and I lift them out and guide them with my fingers. But they don't like you to touch their stems until they're way, way, way more established. Mm
2: -hmm. And really,
5: to get them established, you need a really, 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 really good light. And I know you can go out and buy some very expensive grow lights, but it's so simple to buy these $10 shop lights and use a cool fluorescent and a warm fluorescent bulb, which kind of is almost the same as daylight. And then put them down, because fluorescent tubes don't get hot like year. Is it incandescent light bulb? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you put them down really close next to the soil when you're first starting, and then when they when you can see them popping up, you just lift those lights ever, s- just stay right on top of them mm. the whole time. But do
4: those lights have the UV rays that we read about that we yeah. want?
5: Absolutely. I have been using shop lights my entire life That's to a grow money plants. saver right there. Oh my gosh, yeah. Those grow lights are really expensive, and you just don't gain anything.
3: That's surprising. Um, Good tip.
5: So what I do then is if I'm, you know, once I get them established a little bit, then I put them on a a bookshelf and I have the the fluorescent lights on the shelf above them and they have chains on them. And then I wrap that bookcase or that shelf with some leftover plastic from the high tunnels and it keeps them warm, Mm. especially if you have a germination mat in there. And those are fairly inexpensive. You can get a good size mat from... Um, runnings or menards for probably 20 bucks. And trust me, it's really, really worth it, especially if you have a house that fluctuates in temperature, you know, Mm -hmm. like forced air heat, they're cold, they're hot. I miss my hot water heat house really bad this time of year. But, um, yes, so then that way you keep kind of a plastic tent over them, and they'll love you for it. They will um, thrive as long as you get that light there. And the sooner that light hits that green... The better, you know, when they come out of the ground. Do you so,
0: want the lights on 24 hours a day? Um, you do not have to do
5: that. I do because it's just too hard to go in there and turn them off before I go to bed. <laughs> You can put them on a timer. Um, I would say 8 to 10 hours a day probably would be good enough. So, But I think fluorescent doesn't use a lot of electricity, and there's a little—you know, they have those new plastic ones. They're not even glass anymore, so they're, they're safer than they used to be fluorescent tubes are. so, mm-hmm. And you get those in multiple sizes, those shop lights. So if you don't have a lot of room, you still should be able to set up some little corner somewhere. You save so much money growing your own transplants. Plus, you can do so many different varieties that you're not going to find at a store. Sure. So let's say you want to grow four different types of tomatoes, but you only have room for six or eight plants, or maybe even a dozen And you have to buy them in six packs. You can't use all those tomatoes. But by growing your own, you can really, really hone down your garden and grow exactly what you want.
0: We check in with root seller Sue, Sue Balcom, once a week for food and gardening tips. And you can always check out her blog at therootsellers.com. And that L L E R S. Sue, thank you.
5: Thank you, you guys. Just remember, you can't eat without a garden. You know, the two go together hand
4: in hand. (laughs) Sure nice to think about a garden, too, right now.
5: Oh, isn't it, though? Thank you, guys. Support for Prey Public is provided by AARP
2: North Dakota. Fighting fraud, promoting financial resilience, and offering local events designed with you in mind. AARP North Dakota is helping your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. Learn more at aarp.org/nd. I'm Dave Thompson. This week on Legislative Review, we'll hear from West Fargo Republican Senator Judy Lee, who chairs the Senate Human Services Committee. She'll talk about issues such as behavioral health, workforce, and taxation. Legislative Review airs Friday at 6:30 p.m. here on Prairie Public.
4: This is Dakota Datebook for March 2nd. The adjournment of the legislature often brings a collective sigh of relief. Sessions over the years have ended late at night, often with major issues decided in the last moments. Some sessions ended bitterly, even violently. Here's a sampling. A fistfight broke out in the North Dakota Senate chamber in the final hours of the 1921 session after the Senate tried to question two House of Representative attorneys about expenses for a House committee investigation. The attorneys had been arrested and brought to the Senate, but they refused to be sworn. A fracas erupted at the back of the Senate chamber after one of the attorneys was released from arrest and left. In the fight, a former state auditor, reportedly mauled the state bank examiner's son and suffered a black eye and several scratches to his face. A former Golden Valley County Sheriff was laid out cold. The second House attorney was later released after being detained in a cloakroom and in the Attorney General's suite instead of the county jail to avoid a mob in the Capitol Rotunda. In 1935, a state representative accused other House members of bribery, Another representative accused the House Speaker of threatening to close the Ellendale Normal School unless a hail insurance bill passed. The Speaker said his comments had been made as a joke. The accusations threw the House into turmoil in the session's final hours, according to the Bismarck Tribune. Vetoes were a contentious issue this month in 1967 when the Republican-controlled legislature overrode a record seven vetoes of Democratic Governor Bill Guy. The governor vetoed a record 20 bills, including one to allow unlimited speed on interstate highways. Another would remove the governor's authority to issue game and fish proclamations. There was also one that would have banned daylight saving time. The governor vetoed 10 bills when the legislature adjourned, meaning lawmakers weren't able to convene to vote on additional overrides. The session was notable in another way. The legislature hadn't overridden the veto in 22 years. In 1901, the Tribune may have hit the nail on the head with its headline after the legislature adjourned, The Agony is Over! Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Jack Dura. I'm Meryl Pepcorn.
3: Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community.
0: The Saudi government has loosened controls on that country's cultural life. One critic says the change is a calculated tactic by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman.
2: If I entertain my portion, they won't mind that it's coming with this huge price
0: on their safety, on their freedom, on their fundamental human rights. Do these cultural freedoms come at the cost of other liberties? On the next Morning Edition from NPR News.
2: 4 a.m. to 9 Central here on Prairie Public.
0: That's it for this Thursday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, time for our weekly news discussion with Dave Thompson. And Madeline is here to review the new dark comedy, Triangle of Sadness. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.